Two of the people I love that are part of it, well, three of them actually, because they're all three of them are here, but Rach and Anna and Andrew, can you come and join us? And can we say a massive welcome and thank you to Rach and Andrew and Anna? Come here, Anna. So Andrew's, Andrew's preaching for us. And some of us will know Andrew very well because Andrew was part of the leadership team here for a long time, um, sort of 10, 15 years on team with us as staff, and has been away from Eastbourne now, or not really away from Eastbourne because he still lives here with Rach and the family, but has been working at King's London now for, is it five years? Six years, you know, not on team with us, but we love him. And so he's speaking into our little series building up to Easter today. But I just wanted to honour this family because I love them. And Rach is here every single week and we love Anna and you'll hear Anna and you'll see Anna around and we love Anna. We just love having her as part of our church family. And they got Zeke as well and Sam, who's a little cheeky Liverpudlian, you know, just running his Liverpool kit everywhere. He thinks he's a Liverpudlian, but he isn't. He's a southerner. Um, but this family is just such a joy to have amongst us and Rach pretty much every week has to come with the kids on her own to be here and so thank you to the wider family people like Jenny and others who just care and look after this family when Andrew's away in London at church and so I just love it this is what it means to be church with each other and one thing I haven't been able to say publicly is over all the challenges the last few years and Covid and Andy's illness and my illness and changing the team Andrew just the amount of times it would say can I do anything he would just step in and preach last minute he'd help on team alongside us still got an office upstairs so you still hear him in the week and he still contributes into discussions whether we like it or not um (laughs) but genuinely we just love the Wilsons so can we just say a massive thank you to the Wilsons is that right all right all yours to meet those of you who I haven't met before. Um, We can turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And we're going to read a a very, very familiar story that probably even those of us who don't regularly go to church may ring bells, may know it. Uh, If you've never heard it before, it's a fantastic story. It may be the most influential single story ever told by anybody. Uh, More world-changing impact than any other. And if you do know it, we're going to try and help you see things in it, perhaps, that you might just have missed because you walked past it so many times. But I want to read, first of all, from Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Hey, Anna. My ambition is to be the second loudest person in this church after Anna. That's the goal. Um, But I'm never going to rival her. It's so great. Okay, Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brother's come and he's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of God. When things are very familiar to us, we tend to walk straight past them. And we don't notice them in the same way. Not very observant about familiarity. Sometimes you see people taking pictures on the seafront, don't you? Of of things that you walk past all the time and you don't realise how nice they are. So he spawns a great place to live, right? But people go back and say, oh, wow. And then you take pictures of Beachy Head and they take pictures of the flowers on down by the pier. I always think, man, they're, just, they're always there. But people get very excited about things and you realize that's actually really beautiful, but I just don't notice it normally. And sometimes that happens with scripture. And when the more familiar the scripture is, often the more over-familiar we become. We just don't see some of the things that are in it. We don't notice things that are so baked into our experience that we've stopped, lost the capacity to be surprised. I read a book last week that was making this point about pub etiquette in this country. It was written by, written by someone who wasn't British, who was saying everybody who's ever been into a pub in Britain knows that it's the only place in the world where you don't queue by forming a line. That in a pub, unlike everywhere else in Britain, you know this already, everyone in this room knows this, and yet no one's ever thought about it, but in every other institution in this country, you queue by standing behind the person ahead of you, except at the bar of a pub where for no obvious reason, people scatter, and they're not even in order, and yet the barman still knows, and it's a massive faux pas to get your drink before someone who's ahead of you, even though they're not ahead of you. But how do we all know that? Every single person here knows that, unless you're visiting this country, in which case I've saved you some aggro. But that's the way it works. And, it's, and, and they also said, this was fascinating, they said also the bar of a pub is the only place in the country where it's socially acceptable to strike up a conversation with a complete stranger. And you can do it at the bar, but you mustn't do it at the table. And I thought, that's true, but I've never noticed. How weird would it be if, you know, you're at the bar and you go, all right, do you see the football? But imagine if people are sitting over there at a table and you went, all right, do you see the football? They're like, get out of here, you weirdo. But why is that true? And sometimes you can just, things that are so familiar to you, you don't realize they're there. And I think the prodigal son or the lost sons or whatever we want to call this story is almost so familiar that you can miss its power if you're a Christian because you've all heard it, probably preached on, read it, told the story to your children many times if you have them. And the parable of the two sons is like, you know, those Pixar movies where there's lots of images for the kids, but then there's lots of nuance and jokes for the adults as well. This story is like that. There's a 
I, I, ta- I have done. I, I, I well up when I read this story in the kids' Bible to my sons, and I'm reading to them and engaging with them about it. But at the same time, at another level, there's so many things in here. I'm thinking, wow, only grown-ups get that, that that's taking place. So I just want to share a few of those things with you. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. Now, if you know your Bible and the people Jesus is speaking to did, we know who he's talking to because there's Pharisees and scribes whose job it is to write out the Bible, like by hand, not, you know, there's no photocopier, like you want to print a Bible, you have to write the whole thing out. That's their job. They're paid to do it. So Jesus is saying, there's a man who had two sons and instantly anyone who knows their Bible might go back and wow, okay, so who do we know in the Bible who's got a man who's got two sons? And you might start, well, it starts right at the beginning. You've got Adam, who's got Cain and Abel. You've got Abraham, who's got Ishmael and Isaac. You've got Isaac, who's got Esau and Jacob. And you've got these guys with two sons. You think, okay, is it, what's Jesus going to do with this story? There was a man who had two sons. Cain and Abel is a story about an older brother who gets jealous and angry with the younger brother because the younger brother is accepted when he thinks he should have been. And that's exactly what the story we've just heard is, right? It's a story about an older brother feeling frustrated about the, and angry, actually, about the younger brother. The younger brother's come back and got, got lots of credit and acceptance, and the older brother's going, this isn't fair. And in Cain's case, he kills him. And as we'll see at the end of this story, there's no ending in this story. It doesn't resolve. We don't know what the older brother does next. What Cain did was to kill him. You think, oh, okay, that's an interesting spin on a story. The older son in this story, acts like the younger son isn't his brother at all. You might, have, might not have noticed that. You might have walked past it like you were you know, not picked up on the pub etiquette. You, no, but in this story, the older brother says, this son of yours, he doesn't say this brother of mine. The father says, he's your brother. But the son says, no, he's your son. Not, he's not my brother. And that's exactly what Cain does. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to look after this guy? And so there's straight off the bat, there's a man who had two sons. Jesus might make you stop and think, is this the story of Cain and Abel? Have we been here before? Do we know how this ends? Or he might make you think, is this the story of Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac? Again, there was a man who had two sons. There is a conflict throughout this story. If you know the story of Genesis, there's a conflict between the older brother, who is the son of, well, Paul says this, he says, he's the son of works, and the younger brother, who's the son of promise. And there's a conflict between them because Ishmael is conceived naturally and Isaac is conceived as a miracle. So there's this conflict between them. Is, are we supposed to read that into this? Are we saying, wow, older brother who's kind of all hairy and a bit wild, and, uh, but, but he's like, he, he's the son of works and then you've got the younger brother who's quite different and he kind of enjoys the finer things in life and he's the child of promise. Is that, are we supposed to see that in this story? And then you could go on a generation and say, maybe it's Esau and Jacob. Maybe the man is Isaac and the older, the older brother's Esau and the younger brother's Jacob because that's another story about an older son who gets angry with the younger son because the younger son's stolen his inheritance. That's what this story is, right? That's the story of Esau and Jacob, isn't it? Esau gets tricked, he feels, out of his inheritance. Jacob says, it's all right. I'll get, swap the inheritance for a bowl of soup. You're hungry. Well, that's a good deal. And Esau goes, yeah. And then a few moments later, oh no, I can't believe I lost it. You clown. And that's, is that what this story is? Is this a story about a brotherly rivalry in which the older brother's angry with the younger one because the younger one's thieved his inheritance? And you could carry on through the Bible thinking about other pairs of people who have fathers who have two sons. 
You can say, well, actually, in, in many ways, the most of the Old Testament is the story about a father who has two sons. And their names are Israel and Judah. And you've got your northern son and your, younger, and your southern younger son, and they're, they're fighting and often. And then the younger one is the one of promise and comes back, and the older one doesn't. You say, oh, is this a story about, like, the Samaritans and the Gentiles or the, the Jews and the Gentiles or just the north and the south? Like, what was Jesus doing? And he's, all he said is, there was a man who had two sons. And then as he cashes out the story with all of these layers, you start thinking, wow, okay, at one level, this is a simple story about the dad loves his son so much when the son comes back. And we say, yes, that's what my boys sitting over there, that's what they hear when we talk about this story in the children's Bible. And that's what the story means. The love of the father is so lavish for you. Whatever you've done, he'll take you back. But that can't be all the story's trying to do. Because if it was, there would only need to be one son. It's not the parable of the prodigal son. We call it that, but it's at least two lost sons in this story. And sometimes they would say there's a prodigal father as well. So there's more going on here, isn't there? And it's like, just there was a man who had two sons. And actually, as, as contemporary Western people, we might even step back further and say, do you know what? It isn't even that this story about two sons maps onto the Bible in a spooky way. It also maps onto the modern world in a spooky way. I w- we have a brief show of hands. How many, um, you don't have to say anything about them, but how many people in this room have two sons and only two sons? That's the, right? Well, there's a lot of people here who have two sons. Yeah, I can, I'm looking around and say, yes. Russell and Jeanette, Andy and Lynn. Yeah, yeah, the Robins. I, I clocked some of you guys in the worship. The Leped, yeah. So loads of us have two sons. Now, I wouldn't want to insinuate that this is true of all of those people. It isn't. But some of you will have noticed this dynamic even to play out between your own kids, right? You have an older one who might be a bit more dutiful and a younger one who's a bit more woo or words to that effect. Now, I'm not saying that's true of them all. I know a lot of the people involved. I'm not claiming it. I wouldn't like to put that on Caleb or any other person in the room. But that does sometimes happen. And if you want an example, how many people watch The Crown? This is the plot of every season of The Crown, isn't it? You have a dutiful sibling and you have a Larry Harem Scarum sibling and there's conflict between them, right? It's Elizabeth and Margaret. It might be Charles and Andrew. It might be kind of Diana and Camilla in a way. It's definitely William and, Har- William and Harry. This could be a story of William and Harry, the, the young son who goes off to a far-flung country. And then comes back, and then the, everyone else is like, oh, now, I'm, again, I'm not going to get politicized about it, but that story, right? Now, so you might say, how has Jesus introduced a story that could mirror multiple stories in the book at the same time as evoking something that many of us at a personal level go, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. That is often what happens. And I don't think it's just because this story is like that. I think it's because there is something that the creator knows about the way that we're wired that can draw wisdom out, that everyone in the world can go, yeah, I didn't, I've never even heard of Esau, but I can see that's true, that that is something like what's happening in this story. And Jesus, of course, is telling it with yet another group of audiences in mind. He's telling it because he's got tax collectors and sinners who are gathering to him. Chapter 15 and verse 1 said, this is who he's talking to. Tax collectors and sinners are coming and the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling. So he's got a younger brother's coming to him and older brother's saying, we're not happy about this at all. And so he's telling the story with that audience in mind, meanwhile getting seriously meta with all of the layers of scripture and the crown and the rest of everything else in the pub bar that we've just seen. And Jesus is deliberately using it as a way of exposing the way that human beings respond to God. That there are people whose journey away from God comes through self-discovery. They leave home and they wander off into a foreign land. They say, stuff you, Dad, I don't want you. I just want your money. Now I'm off. 
And there are people who are separated from God because they are dutiful and moral and upright and they stick at home and they do everything they should and they never stop resenting it. And they turn to their father and said, all these years I've done everything you told me and you never gave me a goat. Their dad's saying, what are you talking about? You have everything that's mine. The parable begins with him dividing his property between the boys. The young one takes the portable wealth and hoofs off. The older one keeps most of the wealth. He gets the farm and he stays. He's got everything. But he resents every bit of it because he's like, I've still had to work for you. I've done everything right and it wasn't good enough for you, dad. And so there's two ways to be lost. There's the young man disappearing finding out it doesn't work, eating pig's wheel, coming home, and there's the older one saying, I did everything right, and it still wasn't enough. I resent my dad for not giving me a goat. So there's a lot there. And that's the story of, I even ask you, who do you relate to more? I'm an older brother, literally and spiritually, I think. I'm more, I haven't really, I mean, yeah, there's periods of my life I didn't do well, but I haven't really done what the younger brother did. I've never done that thing where you just say, I hate God, I'm off. I don't believe in him. Spend years living out the other. I've not done that. I'm more the older brother a lot of the time. I'm like, I just... Well, did you read that story as a child? Maybe some of you and hear it and, and sympathize with the older brother. Say, I know exactly how he feels. Of course you'd be angry about the younger brother coming back. Why does everyone act as if this is Okay. If that's you and it's me, you're probably more likely to struggle with grace than you are with righteousness. You probably find grace sticks in your throat even sometimes. You probably find it hard to receive the grace of God even when it's spelled out for you like that. You go, oh man, I, yeah, I don't find that easy emotionally to handle the fact that God scrubs everything everyone's ever done because that means a lot of my good works have scrubbed as well and all of their bad works have been scrubbed and I kind of thought I was better than them and now well, what am I left with? All these years I've worked for you. This is a parable addressed really more to older brothers than youngers. Now, when we tell this story and apply it in church, I've been here I've over years. Some of you know this. We, and I'd probably have preached this, and certainly we have. So this is a time for prodigals to return. Yes, it is. It always is in God's timing, a time for the younger wastrel to come back. But that's not really what Jesus is doing in the story. And the way we know that is because what Jesus is doing in the story is addressed to the tax, the tax collectors and sinners are saying, yes, we love him. And the Pharisees and scribes are saying, no, we don't. And then he tells them this story. He's saying, basically, the tax collectors and sinners, they're already coming back. Prodigals do. They live the wild life. They find out it doesn't work. And they come back to the only place they can find unconditional acceptance. They're not the ones you have to worry about. The ones you have to worry about are the guys out in the field thinking they've done everything right. People like me. And maybe, like many of you. Verse 13. The youngest son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. This is the oldest sort of story there is. If you, not just in the Bible, the idea of people exile and return. It's the oldest story in the, story in the Bible, but it's the oldest story in other literature as well. So one of the first great epics in the Western canon would probably be Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. And that's basically what happens. Big battle over a city, Trojan horse, all that. And then Odysseus is just a very, very, very long journey home. That's what that's the stories we tell. Human beings always do that. We tell stories because it's baked into us. Like, yeah, I know what it's like. There comes a point in my life, whatever age that is, where I just want to leave. I don't, I'm just fed up with these guys telling me what to do. I've got to go. And they leave and they wander 
And depending on the time scales, and the personality, the time scales vary a lot. But there's this beautiful moment when they come home. And that is, I mean, I, I flew last week. I flew both, I flew to America and back. So I, I watched a number of movies on, just that happened to be there on the back. And I couldn't believe, I had written this message. And I was like, oh my word, this is a homecoming movie. This, is, this story is all about somebody who goes off and does the big thing and then returns home and how that works for them. And I just was astonished by how many movies or Netflix shows or whatever you watch are basically stories about people leaving and then coming back. Because that's what we all do. We leave and then we return. And this story is appealing to something deep within us. Sibling rivalry and the journey off and the long journey back. Verse 13 and 14, the younger brother, it says he squandered his property in reckless living and when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, I'm told by people who have studied this stuff that when you poll Western people, which most of us are, they don't notice the famine. Some of you have never noticed it. You've heard the word read many times. You've heard that word read in English. It's not an unfamiliar word, but you just don't see it. So, and I don't either, innately, right? I, this, if someone asked me to summarize the story, that isn't a detail I would remember. I'd remember the young man wasted his money, but I wouldn't remember there was a famine. Well, actually what Jesus says is both of those things combined create the need that means he's eating pig pods and then comes home. He's a wastrel, he wastes his money, and there is a social, wider, meta-justice uh, provision thing that means he can't do it. And what happens is Western people individualize the story and we go, oh, this is a story about a guy who made bad choices and then had to come home. And actually what happens in a lot of parts of the world, people notice the famine and they say, this is also the story of a person who suffered from events beyond his control and that's what drove him to his knees and then he came back. And I find that quite interesting whenever you get a debate, as there often are in the culture, about how much this person's situation is a result of their choices and how much is a result of structural systemic factors. Right? That debate comes up in everything. It comes up when you're talking about poverty. It comes up when you're talking about race. It comes up when you're talking about everything. And, and yet, right here in the parable of the prodigal son, this is a result both of his poor choices and of his structural systemic factors, like in his case of famine. And I think that's just interesting to draw out. It's not particularly related to the grace of God, but Jesus is clever. When he does things like that, he's probably got a reason behind it. Verse 16. He was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. It's fascinating how sin distorts your desires, isn't it? It makes you long for things that are not good. Actually, in the cold light of day, you'd say, pig pods, ugh! But something about the situation makes you think, do you know what, that's, that's better. And one of the most corrupting things that sin does is it gets you to, to think of good as evil and evil as good. It, it, and he does it through a whole culture as well. But it just bakes into you. Like, you know that thing that if you were looking with your right mind, that's pretty grim? Actually, oh, I'd love that. And you know that other thing that is actually really good? No, I don't want that. That's horrible. It's the way that sin corrodes you. And in this case, of course, through hunger as well. And we do that. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said. We, we exchange the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that can't hold any water. So we drink out of a boggy kind of muck instead of drinking beautiful, clear water, because we'd rather have control over something that's horrible than be submitted to someone that's glorious. And that's what's happening to this man. And then, verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, 
I'll arise and go to my father. I love that line. That's you every time you get up and come to church when you don't feel like it. Right? You, you, you live in, you're in a week, you're, I am, right? You're in a week where everything's, you know, some things are good, some things are bad, but you are surrounded by the consequences of your own mistakes, and you're like, I just, I'm not up for this. I'm just, I'm tired, I'm worn out, I don't care, I don't want to be at church, I don't want to worship God, I feel grumpy and cantankerous and self-righteous and self-pitying, and I just want to sit here and fester in my own complaint and watch the Sunday shows, or whatever it might be for you. I don't know, maybe you've never thought that, but... I think there's some of you, you, you know what I'm talking about. And then some, somewhere, the thought, you might not have it in this exact phrase, but somewhere the thought, and it's the Holy Spirit's prompting in you, goes, I'm sitting here, I'm hungry, and I'm filthy. I will arise and go to my Father. That's what you think. It comes out of nowhere. You don't know why. And you're like, somewhere, you're like, I will arise and go to my Father. I'm on my sofa. I'm in my bed. I'm wherever I am, kitchen table. I might literally, some of you, it may have been, I'm just sobbing about something. That may have been this morning for you. And then somewhere the Holy Spirit goes, arise, go to your Father. And you'll find a welcome from him that you don't get anywhere else. And that call has come to you, many of you today. And that's what the, the younger man does. It's one of my favorite lines about what happens when you go to church. That's what I'm doing on a Sunday morning. And not just Sunday, right? It's not, you know, we don't, it's not spooky, right? You do, you do that every day of the week, God willing, but... There's a moment to gather with the people of God. And some of you, that, that's, that's what, some of you need to get that. You need to put it on your mirror or wherever it is you put it on your fridge. Right? I will arise and go to my father. But while he was still a long way off, verse 20, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now that's the heart of the story. That's the centerpiece, I think, in the narrative. It's the bit that we all know and love. It's the bit that makes me well up when I'm reading it to my boys. It's the bit that made me cry when I read What's So Amazing About Grace or any book that tells the parable of the lost sons through the sort of a different modern lens and you kind of, you get it. That's the bit that makes me choke. I think the love of God is so outlandish and extreme, and something of it, even though I've heard it a thousand times, something of it breaks my heart for the love that God has for me and for you. And I just want to ask you that. Like, if that isn't what happens to you when you read the story, and it never has, is that what your picture of God is like? Now, when I say the word God, and we know it's not big man in the sky with beard, we know it's all that, but what does the kind of God who comes into your mind, when I even say the word God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord, or Jehovah, or whatever word you use it to call him, is the picture that you have of him commensurate with this? That he's running, embracing, kissing, hugging, saying, everybody, where are the clothes? What are you doing here? Get the shoes, get the robe, get the ring, let's eat and celebrate. Is that what God's like to you? I don't mean do you prefer to think of him that way, I mean, is your vision of the Heavenly Father in line with the way Jesus describes him in this story? Verse 22, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, back to biblical stories that this might be about, right? This is a story about a younger son who leaves his father's house is given the best robe by his dad, is given a ring to recognize him, is assumed to be dead, and is then discovered to be alive again, prompting feasting and celebration. Who does that remind you of? That's the story of Joseph, almost to the letter. 
And it's, been, it's like the pub rules again. You're at the bar going, oh, I just never noticed that's what happened. And you're reading it going, I didn't, maybe some of you did, but many of us going, I didn't realize that. What? Joseph's story? But that's what's happened. This young brother, older brothers kind of look down on him and despise him, goes off into another country, given this best robe, the ring, the whole caboodle. And here he is back. And people, his father is going, Joseph, I thought you were dead. Young son, I thought you were dead, but you're alive again. Now let's eat and celebrate. It's also worth asking, the best robe, whose is the best robe likely to be? It's probably the older brothers, isn't it? You think, as in who does it belong to? Like the younger brother, the younger son's been away for years. Whose is the best robe? Maybe it's the older brothers. I think that's quite an interesting little twist. When you think through, actually the younger brother is now being clothed in what belonged to the older brother because he's fully restored to the family. But that kind of helps you understand maybe the older brother's reaction. It also makes you think, oh, this is a bit Jacob and Esau, isn't it? The younger brother in the robes of the older brother being given the inheritance that belonged to him. Take it or leave it. It might not be right. I don't know. The question for older brothers everywhere is, are you going to react to the homecoming of the younger brother like Joseph's brothers did? You know, or, or like Esau did, right? Because I, I think a lot of these biblical connections are there. I think I do. And I think that what you have in this story is Jesus playing with lots of Genesis stories going, this story's as old as the hills. You guys know it, you Jewish scribes. You're well aware of this. And my challenge to you is, are you going to respond to the younger brothers coming to Jesus like Esau and Joseph's brothers in the end did, which is to welcome him with forgiveness and love? Esau famously when he's reunited with Jacob at the end of his life in Genesis chapter 33, Esau runs and embraces and kisses his brother, which is just what the father does in this story. And I think Jesus is laying a little, a nice little, it's like a trap for their good. He's saying, are you going to do that? When you see these ne'er-do-wells coming to me, are you going to react like Esau did? Even like Joseph's brothers did in submission and recognition, oh, we failed you, but thank you for being restored to us. Or are you going to react like even Esau, this terrible, in many ways, a bad figure, like not a guy you want to imitate in the Bible, but even Esau reached the place of forgiveness to his younger brother who'd gone away to a far-off country and taken his inheritance. Are you going to do that? Or are you going to feel the self-righteous pride seething in you and cutting you off not just from relationship with him, but relationship with your father as well? Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. Why does that matter? Well, it's got to be somewhere. What's wrong with being in the field? It's just interesting. Esau is described. That's how he's introduced to us. Jacob lived in tents. Esau was a man of the field. And again, we have a younger brother who enjoys the finer things of life, and we have an older brother who works in the fields. You can almost imagine him bow and arrow, psh, killing these animals out there and then going, right, I'll bring them back for some stew. Again, Jesus, these little details, Jesus is trying to get, are you going to react like he did or not? But he was angry verse 28, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, I've served you these many years and I never disobeyed your commandment. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Now, in our culture, that's not very good behavior. In a Middle Eastern honor shame culture, that is a terribly shameful thing to do. In fact, what the older brother has done is just as shaming to his dad as the younger brother. The younger brother said, I wish my dad was dead. I want to take his money and go to a far off land where I'm going to spend it. The older brother is in front of a village party because a, a fatted calf's far too big for three people. Right? This is for everybody. All the hard laborers, everyone. And I am shaming my dad and refusing to go in even though he's pleaded with me to do it. 
That is, if, if anybody who's even travelled in the Middle East, that will resonate. You'll think, whoa. Certainly if you're from there, you'd say, you would never do that. Like, that's the most shameful thing a brother could do in that situation. And both sons have shamed their dad, and both sons are lost. But one is lost by leaving and doing everything wrong, and the other is lost by staying and doing everything right. Verse 31, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. The father has overwhelming affection for both boys. Yeah, do you hear that? If you're an older brother, this parable I think is aimed more at you, like it's aimed at me. But the appeal, again, of the text, Jesus is saying, the father feels the same affection for you as he does for the younger one. So this isn't a story about younger brothers good, older brothers bad. This isn't saying, go and spend your money with prostitutes. Might as well, because if you stay at home, you don't get anything for it. That's not the punchline. Please don't hear that. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm trying to say the same thing to the older brother. I'm appealing to both of my boys. I want them both to come home to a relationship with me. It's just the younger one already has in this story. But now I'm appealing to you, all that is mine is yours. I never had bits of my life, bits of my property that I didn't want to share with you. I always wanted you to share everything that I have and everything that I am. He ran down the road in compassion to the younger brother and he goes into the field in compassion for the older brother, but he wants them both to come home. And as a lifelong older brother, I am so grateful that God's compassion for me is no less than God's compassion for the Larry Wastrel younger brother who's wandered off and spent all the money. The father wants both of his boys to be home. He wants all of his daughters to be home. He wants you to come home to the father, whether you have done everything wrong or whether you've done everything right. And famously, this parable has no conclusion. It simply ends with the father's appeal to his brother, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and us, it's good to celebrate and be glad because the younger son who was dead is alive again and was lost is found. Most of Jesus' stories have a punchline. Go and do likewise. Something like that, right? This one doesn't. This one leaves it open. What's the older brother going to do? Is he going to react like Esau? Is he going to react like Cain? Is he going to do something in the middle? Who knows? Will the scribes and Pharisees celebrate that the tax collectors and sinners are entering the kingdom? Final observation. This is what Ollie asked me to speak on when he, when he drew it out. He just said, oh, I'd, love, I'd love to draw this point out and I want to finish with it because it's wonderful. This is the third of three stories in Luke 15. All about the grace of God, all about the joy that God has when sinners return to him. But there is an escalating waterfall of grace in these parables. Because in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1, he tells the story of the lost sheep. There is one out of a hundred sheep are lost and is then found. But then, in the next story, is a woman looking for coins. There's one out of ten is lost and then found. And in this story, there's one out of two who is lost and then found, and maybe even two out of two, but we don't know. That's part of the story. It's like there's a 1% lostness celebration grace. 10% of the people are lost and then find grace. 50% of the people are lost and then find grace. And maybe all of them, who knows? It's up to you, is what Jesus is saying. So who's the real prodigal here? Is it the younger son who wastes his possessions? Is it the older son who wastes the relationship and the privilege he has and standing of being his, son, his father's son? Or is the real prodigal, the father himself, who gives so prodigally, so wastefully, it would seem, so liberally and abundantly, vastly more than you could ask or imagine? 
Yes, when you shame me in front of my family, I'm prepared to give up all of my possessions so that my boys can have it. Yes, I will run. Yes, I'll hug and kiss the guy covered in pig filth. Yes, I will go out and and plead with my older brother instead of shaming him and kicking him out of the family. I will be liberal and abundant for where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that grace might reign in life. Abounding righteousness, kindness and love to the lost. I think the father in many ways is the real prodigal of this story. And as we come to him, let's receive the grace that passes understanding in measuring more than we can ask or think. Should we stand? Heavenly Father, we are so amazed at your grace. We are. That's what's amazing about grace. We, we, we say it all the time, but it is. It, when we lose the amazement, it's often because we just perhaps walk past it too many times and haven't stopped for a while to take a photo of it. Lord, your grace is rich and deep and beautiful. It's for older brothers everywhere. It's for younger brothers, older sisters, younger sisters, the whole lot. Lord, your grace is extended to us with arms open. We thank you for your hug. We thank you for your welcome. We thank you for the roast that is ours in Christ. We thank you so much for the loving kindness of God shown to us in the death and resurrection of his son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.